0: Coming up, I'm having grad night flashbacks because it's the 1980s. That's next. From points across, (laughs) it didn't work. From points across California, you're listening to the Disneyland edition of the Diz Unplugged. This is the Does Unplug Disneyland Edition, episode 606, for the week of August 28th, 2016. The Does Unplug Disneyland Edition is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, helping you plan the perfect Disneyland vacation. Visit them on the web at www.dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. I am your host, Tom Bell, and I'm joined by my good friends, Marjorie Jamalada-Willi. Hello. Michael Bowling.
1: Hey there, hi there, ho there.
0: And Tony's Patel. Hello. And that was a horrible intro. I apologize. I'm sure the rest of the show will be much better. Hey, Michael.
1: Hey, Tom. How are you? (laughs) Good.
0: (laughs) So, last we left the parks, disco was in (laughs)
1: full swing. That's right. That's right. It was (laughs) 1979. So, and, and. President Reagan and was running for president. We're into the 1980s now. Uh, president Reagan's in office. As we look back, the Cold War is still going strong. Uh, if you're looking back, as you know, President Reagan called for Premier Gorbachev to tear down the Berlin Wall. The Soviet Union shot down a Korean airliner, uh, you know, so that political tensions were, were high. Uh, you know, Reaganomics... Uh, Cross the land. You know, in popular culture, we heard of the yuppies for the first time, replacing the, the baby boomers. Um, there were a lot of popular television shows like 30 something and that sort of, uh, you know, sort of capitalized on the yuppies who were considered less shallow and superficial than the previous generation. Movies like The the Big Chill, Bright Lights, Big City depicted a generation of young men and women who are plagued with anxiety and self-doubt. They were successful, but they didn't think they were very happy about it. Um, big movies in the 80s. E.T. The Extraterrestrial, Return of the Jedi, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Beverly Hills Cop. So a lot was going on. MTV debuted. Um, Duran Duran and Culture Club made megastars out of artists and Michael Jackson um, became popular with his hit Thriller. So all of this was going on when Disneyland entered its second quarter century. On January 1st, 1980... It not only ushered in a new decade, it launched the beginning of Disneyland's 25th anniversary celebration called the Disneyland Family Reunion. Leading the celebration is the Family Reunion Parade, celebrating the land's attractions and beloved characters of Disneyland. And you can view this parade on YouTube. As part of the Celebrate the Lands activities, a weekend was set aside for each land when guests were allowed to ride that land's attractions for free as often as they wished. Remember, this was still in the days of the ticket books, so this provided a good value for families. So Disneyland's 25th anniversary celebration was nostalgia-laden and could arguably be responsible for the birth of Disney fandom. On the Disneyland Walt Disney World and Connecting with Walt shows on the Diz, we've often talked about how Disneyland is a part of Southern California culture. By the time of Disneyland's 25th anniversary in 1980, there were elementary school children, high school students, and college graduates who grew up with Disneyland's Magic Kingdom as their neighbor and a constant part of their life. For these youth, Disneyland had always been. All the talk, promotion, and nostalgia surrounding Disneyland's 25th anniversary suddenly inspired people to realize that Disneyland had its own history. It wasn't just a place to go and spend some time. It was a part of our family and our family's personal history. The 25th anniversary celebration also reminded people there was a man and not a corporation behind its creation. The park had surveyed children born after Disneyland opened, and the survey revealed that a significant number of them didn't know Walt Disney was a real person. Just as they thought Ford was an automobile, not a person, Walt Disney had become a what, not a who. As part of the celebration, articles and photos of Walt and his park were published in newspapers and magazines, and a special display about Walt Disney was installed at the Opera House lobby of Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln. Families began to scrounge through their attics, garages, and basement for their old Disneyland souvenirs, starting a flood of Disneyland memorabilia becoming available on the marketplace. On March 6th, the CBS TV network aired Craft Salutes, Disneyland's 25th anniversary, hosted by Danny Kay. Google them kids, as part part of, he was actually a a big named actor at the time, as part of Disney's Wonderful World anthology series. Filmed throughout Disneyland, this made-for-TV special celebrates the 25th anniversary of the park. We follow the story of a young boy, Adam Rich, on his first ever trip. <laughs> <laughs> <I know. laughs> what what television show was he on? Eight is, was eight is enough. Eight is enough. Very big at the time. On his very first ever trip to Disneyland. See, even back then, oh. they did celebrity casting. While there, yeah, so
2: funny because I watched that show not too long ago. Mm-hmm. It was, it was neat.
1: Yeah, see, all my complaining about Neil Patrick Harris for the 60th and right. for the yeah, 25th, they had Danny Kaye and Adam Rich. Yeah. Look at that. Um, anyway, so we follow the story of the young boy Adam Rich on his first ever trip to Disneyland. While there, he encounters many interesting characters, all played by Danny Kaye, who tell him various tidbits about the park's history. There are also musical numbers by Donny Osmond, Michael Jackson... <coughs> And Danny Kaye, as well as um, group sing-alongs that include many actual Disneyland cast members and guests. Guest stars include Wally Bogue, Buddy Ebsen, Annette Funicello, and many actors from popular television shows of that time. And this is available on YouTube. What's funny about this is that when this did, when this was aired, I recorded it on. Um, on on a, on a VHS tape and I played it years later for our children and they uh when they show Michael Jackson it was when he was a young man pre uh, plastic surgery they didn't know who he was they didn't recognize wow. him oh wow they they asked who was he so uh, and you know he was a handsome young man he didn't need to do all that to himself I agree I mean anyway. In October, 30 former musketeers filmed a TV special for the 25th anniversary of the Mickey Mouse Club show, which included appearing on a parade float in the Disneyland 25th anniversary parade. The highlight of the Disney family reunion was on July 17, 1980, with a 25-hour party at Disneyland. Despite the park's plans to produce souvenir coins, plates, and medallions, no official Disneyland 25th anniversary memorabilia was on sale at the park at the 25-hour party. Like everyone else at Disneyland, executives were unaware of the importance of their own history. When the excitement of the 25th anniversary came to an end, Disneyland executives realized there was no new attraction planned to welcome in the park's second quarter century the 25th anniversary was the first celebration not centered around a new attraction this was a promotion for the sake of promotion alone now that's commonplace of course but back then it was it was unusual did anybody attend the 25th anniversary No, I don't think Mm, so. I I was
2: only twenty at the time, and
1: I don't think so. You weren't allowed to go out on your own.
2: Yeah. Well, (laughs) no, it was it. We we didn't have a. To us, Disneyland was a very big thing, so we Mm -hmm. only went when family came out Mm -hmm. in those days. It wasn't until the thirtieth anniversary that I started um, going Mm -hmm. to all of the events and stuff like that
1: this was this was the first time i'd been to disneyland since i was a teenager and i I just thought it was spectacular i went with friends from university i would saved up we went and it was i I, it made me fall in love with disneyland all over again and disney i'd sort of put that part of my life sort of in the background and uh, um that rekindled it completely and just made me realize how much joy it brought me and how interested I was in all its history and everything. I mean, it was so I remember sitting at the Golden Horseshoe Review, seeing the, um, you know, watching that they had a special 25th anniversary song that they did. And they had this, this like giant picture frame that they all stood in. I think it was towards the end of the show. And it was, uh, and, and, and it was, they had a special 25th, um, disneyland anniversary song that that the whole cast sang and it was just i still remember that it was just really really nice and that that sort of got me going again brought me to where we are today so Mm. neat yeah so now wed was totally focused on the construction of epcot center in florida and its first international theme park tokyo disneyland Um, When Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom was built, Disneyland benefited from new attractions conceived for the Florida Park. But Disneyland would receive no new attractions from Tokyo Disneyland. From Epcot Center, Disneyland would receive only a Civil War song and a film about China. Disneyland did receive an upgrade to its main gate with new ticket booths, turnstiles, and a landscaped mall. In October 1955, Disneyland introduced the ticket books as a way to counter guest perceptions they were being nickel and dimed by having to reach into their wallets to purchase tickets for each individual attraction. An unanticipated benefit of the ticket books... They sorted the attractions by value was that it forced guests to organize their day and experience the smaller attractions that gave the park its charm and overall theme, as well as the more thrilling ones. The ticket books were so successful, Knott's Berry Farm issued their own version of the ticket books. (coughs) Then in 1979, Six Flags purchased the Magic Mountain Amusement Park and introduced a general admission ticket that included the unlimited use of all rides. Disneyland had issued similar passports to the members of its Magic Kingdom Club, which was a benefit offered by large companies and to the military that offered discounts and special ticket media to its members, but never to the general public. Uh, I was a teacher by that time, and so the teachers' union, that was part of our benefits, was Magic Kingdom Club. dad, we would get these passports, uh uh-huh,
2: yeah, my dad worked for the state as a pharmacist and he got that too.
1: Yeah, and then and the passports would come with like this little golden safety pin that yes. and you would pin it to your shirt so that wow. they, the cast members would see it and they know that um you didn't have to offer a ticket for the attraction. You could just walk on. Yeah, I we remember felt so special.
2: Yeah, I remember going on <clears throat> pirates while my parents were eating in Blue Bayou. And then we went on it again, like mm-hmm. my brother and I. That's like one of my early memories, which is funny. Cause...
1: Mm-hmm. Anyways, sorry. No, that's fine. Oh, f- yeah, feel And f- that was probably a big
2: thing oh, yeah. it was. that you were able to do that.
1: Oh, and you just felt so special. Mm-hmm. Now, in response to Six Flags, Disneyland introduced an unlimited passport on June twentieth, 1981 to the general public for $10.25, which included unlimited use of all attractions. For guests arriving after 7 p.m. to enjoy the nighttime festivities, an $8 summer night passport was also available. Guests were still able to purchase a book of 11 tickets for $9.25. The Unlimited Passport was a success with guests and financially for Disneyland. The last ticket book was sold on June 16, 1982, and a new era began when guests would focus on the more thrilling, former e-ticket attractions and begin to ignore the smaller attractions. 1982 started out on a sad note when Wally Bogue gave his last performance at the Golden Horseshoe Review on January 28. He had performed in the show almost continuously since its opening in 1955, putting him in the Guinness Book of Records for the most number of performances of a show, about 40,000. On September 30th, Pepsi-Cola ended its sponsorship of the Golden Horseshoe Review, and on October 1st, Eastman Kodak took over sponsorship of the Golden Horseshoe until 1984. Golden Horseshoe Review was just never the same once Wally Bogue retired. For many reasons, primarily the lack of time and money, Walt Disney was never able to create the Fantasyland of his vision. Com- compromises had to be made. Fantasyland was built with the idea that it would be updated later and with more detail. When the park opened, the elaborate castle courtyard that Walt and his designers had planned had been retooled to a medieval traveling tournament tents, with the backstory that rides were brought into the castle courtyard for the temporary <coughs> festivities. When the Storybookland Canal Boats opened in 1956, it was believed that the European storybook facades of the miniature buildings actually represented the fantasy land Walt envisioned. And that story has endured for decades. And I'll come back to that shortly. In the two and a half decades since Disneyland opened, Tomorrowland had been reimagined twice, and all the lands had received facelifts, with one exception, Fantasyland. Fantasy, Waltz, once said, If it's really convincing, can't become dated for the simple reason that it represents a flight into a dimension that lies beyond the reach of time." When Rolly Crump became the supervising art director of Disneyland in 1967, he began to look around at what needed to be updated. Rolly turned his attention to Disneyland. The park was showing its age and one of the areas in the most need of repair was Fantasyland. When Fantasyland was originally constructed, the attraction facades were made out of fiberboard. From a distance, they looked fine. But upon closer inspection, the Imagineers discovered the fiberboard was buckling and the facades were falling apart and beyond repair. The flats within the attractions had been repainted so often, they no longer resembled the characters they portrayed. Imagineer Tony Baxter was assigned the role of chief show designer, and he worked with designer Brock Thoman to rethink Fantasyland. One of their goals was to update all the special effects in the attractions to include new technologies like fiber optics. Construction on Epcot Center was still two months from completion, so Tony had to divide his time between Disneyland's Fantasyland and Walt Disney World's Epcot Center. So he claims he thrived on every moment of the pressure. Fantasyland was special, it was Disneyland's heart and soul. In 1981, the time had come to finally create the proper home for the Disney characters whose success had helped to make Walt's dream of Disneyland a reality. The first thing that had to be done was to knock everything down. In November, Dumbo the Flying Elephant was removed. On December 20th, the Fantasyland Theater closed. In 1982, Snow White, Peter Pan, Toad, The Mad Tea Party, Captain Hook's Galley Restaurant closed. Alice in Wonderland closed later in the year on September 6th for an extensive refurbishment. Tony Baxter recalls, The hardest thing for me was not the designing of the new Fantasyland, but being there the day they tore down the original. We came in after the bulldozers were gone that day, and I remember looking at the Fantasyland Theater and the Snow White building. The mural had been ripped off in shreds, and there were pieces of the frightening trees from inside on the ground. The theater's two big Mickey signs were there, and the strings of twinkle lights were on the ground. They had fallen, too. As the group stood gazing solemnly at the destruction, the twinkle lights suddenly flickered on. Tony then thought, oh my God, what have we done? We knew it was too late to stop. We were committed, and if anything at the park was pure Walt, it was Fantasyland. The Skyway Fantasyland station was closed, but the attraction was still open for round-trip flights from Tomorrowland. Guests riding the sky buckets could monitor the progress of the demolition and construction. Can you imagine if if, if the internet existed today?
2: (laughs) Oh my gosh.
1: (laughs) There would be tons of photos. Plans called for Captain Hook's pirate ship and Skull Rock to be moved to make room for Dumbo and it would be, they would be reinstalled as part of storybook land. The canal boat path was to be extended to come out from behind Skull Rock and pass in front of the pirate ship, and in a lagoon, Tik Tok the Crocodile would surface as the canal boats passed. A new seating area and multi-level viewing area would face a small stage on which a pirate show would be performed. Regrettably, budget constraints resulted in the delay of the Alice in Wonderland refurbishment and the pirate ship makeover. During the removal and transfer of the pirate ship, the truck hit a bump, shattering the back panel of the ship. Due to the heavy damage of the pirate ship, plans to move both the ship and Skull Rock were abandoned. By the time the 1982 Christmas holidays arrived the dem- demolition of Fantasyland was complete. Imagineer Ken Anderson, who had worked on the original Fantasyland with Walt Disney, assisted the project team. His enthusiasm for the project reassured the other team members, and his calming influence enabled him to settle differences between the designers. One of the first issues Tony Baxter and his team addressed was the severe congestion in Fantasyland. Yes, they did a remarkable job on that, didn't they? Um, (laughs) The outdoor attractions had been located close to the dark rides, resulting in narrow walkways and constant guest congestion throughout much of the land. The carousel was originally located between the entrances of Snow White and Peter Pan. It was moved 20 feet back to where the Mad Tea Party had been. This allowed for the newly designed and larger facades for the Snow White and Peter Pan attractions. And it allowed room for the carousel to be raised onto a concrete platform and landscaping to be installed to encircle the carousel. This move also provided more room for guests entering and exiting the realm through Sleeping Beauty Castle. Dumbo the Flying Elephants was moved from its location near the Skyway entrance, in the general area of today's Village Hoos restaurant, over to the former Skull Rock location. A third-generation Dumbo attraction, originally destined for Euro Disneyland, was installed and now included 16 flying pachyderms instead of 10. The Mad Tea Party, or teacups as most guests simply refer to them, were originally located where King Arthur Carousel sits today. Tony Baxter had the teacups moved to a central courtyard area in front of the Alice in Wonderland attraction. When the Mad Hatter shop was constructed to replace a tent and snack bar location, it created a small Alice in Wonderland-themed area within Fantasyland. The reimagined attraction facades were designed to be consistent with a medieval village fairground motif with some Renaissance fair in Bavaria added in. Each attraction's facade reflected the theme of the attraction within. The attractions themselves were redone and made approximately 25% larger, and the queues were now covered to protect guests from the weather. Snow White's adventures became Snow White's scary adventures and would now include Snow White herself. Guests were confused over the fact they never saw Snow White, Peter Pan, Mr. Toad, or Alice in Wonderland in their attractions. Guests couldn't grasp the designer's concept that the guest was actually Snow White, Peter Pan, Mr. Toad, and Alice. The Imagineers finally decided to eliminate this confusion and guest complaints by adding the characters to their namesake attractions. Show scenes in Snow White were updated and special effects were added. In an upper window of the new German Gothic castle facade, the Evil Queen would periodically open the drapes and peer down upon unsuspecting guests. A new dark ride attraction designed by Tony Baxter, Pinocchio's Daring Journey, replaced the Fantasyland Theater. This was the first Disneyland dark ride to have a happy ending. (coughs) A wish upon a star brought Pinocchio home, and the Blue Fairy transformed him into a real boy. Rides like Pinocchio's Daring Journey, said Tony Baxter, play on childhood fears, such as the loss of a parent and the joys that follow a reunion. You may be surprised to learn Pinocchio actually opened in Tokyo Disneyland shortly before it opened here in our Disneyland. The facade of the attraction was inspired by Tyrolean architecture and the look of the animated film. The attraction had advanced special effects, including the first use of holography to transform Lampwick into a donkey, the use of the Pepper's Ghost to make the Blue Fairy disappear, and the use of fiber optics on the floor of Geppetto's workshop. Over at Peter Pan's flight, a London-inspired exterior with a large clock tower was constructed, and 24 new animatronic characters were added that included Captain Hook and Peter Pan dueling on the pirate ship's mast, Wendy reading to Michael and John and the Lost Boys. New stars guided guests towards Neverland, and the ending was changed to Mr. Smee in a rowboat and Captain Hook standing upon the open jaws of Tick-Tock the Crocodile. Mr. Toad's track and interior were removed and replaced. The track was made longer and some new scenes were added, including the Toad vehicle crashing through the fireplace with fiber optic sparks hitting the floor, a town square scene and a better Jaws of Hell scene. Parts of the new queue featured an outdoor garden. The facade was designed to look like Toad Hall from Walt Disney's 1949 animated film The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. On April twenty first, nineteen eighty three, the syndicated television special "Believe You Can and You Can," celebrating the opening of New Fantasyland at Disneyland, aired. In this show, Heather O'Rourke from Poltergeist playing <laughs> the the, the, the uh,
2: I saw that one too.
1: Yeah, the stunt casting continues, and this made the twenty fifth anniversary one look like you know an Emmy award winning show because I this is also on YouTube.
0: There,
1: Here. yes, about well, Heather O'Rourke playing herself, goes to Disneyland with her older brother, Lance Sloane, who then abandons her in the park to meet his girlfriend at the haunted mansion. of course mm. they're they're all moving to like Minneapolis because of Dad's new job, so this is their last visit there. Mom decides to stay home. Heather is all excited to meet Mickey and friends when she finds that Fantasyland is closed until further notice. It is then that she meets up with, (laughs) wait till you hear this, Maury Amsterdam. (laughs) From most famous for the Dick Van Dyke show.
0: Yeah, From 20 years earlier, right? I mean,
1: (laughs) you can tell this is a small budget. (laughs) Although there were some state of the art uh, special effects in this. Um, who gives her a preview of the new Fantasyland coming soon, with the exception of the Alice in Wonderland attraction, which wouldn't open until 1984. Um, shots of the land under construction and some scenes from inside Pinocchio are shown. There are a few songs performed. And the program, and this is very disturbing, the program ends with Heather on trial, being grilled by some Disney villains on whether she is a believer in Disney magic or not. Snow White comes to her rescue and convinces the jury that she is indeed a believer. Now, what's nice is the trial is held at the Carnation Garden stage. So, those of you who have never seen it, here's your opportunity. I, I just found this whole ending scene just very disturbing. A- anyway, th- it does have a happy ending. I won't ruin it for you so you can watch it on YouTube. <laughs> but, um,. Now let's get back to that story that this version of New Fantasyland was the realization of Walt's original concept for the land, and that his vision had been reflected in storybook land, but that he had run out of money to build it. Well, that story might well be the biggest fantasy in all of Fantasyland. Years after New Fantasyland was opened, Tony Baxter admitted, we had kind of made those things up all about how Walt had wanted the original Fantasyland to be richer. We assumed that stuff was true. We knew how much Walt really liked Storybook Land. We knew he liked the old-world look of that ride. And much of the Castle Courtyard area with Merlin's Magic Shop and Tinkerbell Toy Shop and so forth had a little of that look. Merlin's Magic Shop set the standard for the quality we were trying to achieve. The result was an environment that seemed like it had been there for many, many years. New Fantasyland opened on May 25, 1983 at an estimated cost of $55.5 million. The highlight of its opening day was a momentous day in the park's history, the second time in the park's history the drawbridge of Sleeping Beauty Castle had been lowered. The first time it was lowered was on July 17, 1955, to allow the first children to enter Fantasyland. Now, in March 1983, the drawbridge was being raised and lowered a second time, not for the opening of the land, but for the filming of a television commercial.
2: Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Bubble Burster Michael. I
1: know. (laughs) Disneyland's executives were so concerned the winch system wouldn't work, they had a crane with a heavy-duty hoist standing by. However, with the addition of almost a ton of counterweights, the drawbridge was raised and lowered without any problems. At the grand opening, the children of Christine Vess Watkins and Michael Shortner, who were the first children Walt Disney officially welcomed into Disneyland on July 17, 1955, were invited to cross over the drawbridge into New Fantasyland. The drawbridge was raised and lowered again for the opening celebration featuring fireworks, parade, and parades, and a giant Maleficent rising 60 feet in the air above the moat. The drawbridge was raised and lowered each night the following week for employees and their families so they could enjoy the dedication of the reimagined land. Hmm. Disneyland's guest attendance reached more than 11.3 million guests in 1981. In 1982, attendance fell to 10.4 million visitors. Although attendance for 1983 started out promisingly, by the end of 1983, attendance continued its decline to 9.9 million guests that year. It wasn't just the White Rabbit who was late for a very important date. The Alice in Wonderland attraction was late for the 1955 opening of the park and did not open in New fan- in Fantasyland until 1958 after funds for the attraction finally became available. Despite its three-year delay in opening, many guests felt the attraction was not as well-developed and immersive as the other dark rides. The sets were simply painted flats attached to the walls, and the figures were plywood cutouts nailed to the floor to display vignettes from the film. The years were not kind to this attraction, and its props and the original paint jobs were repeatedly redone by artists who did not know what the original designers had intended. The reimagining of Fantasyland provided Tony Baxter with the perfect opportunity to renovate the attraction. In the updated version of the attraction, audio-animatronic characters were added. The sets were beautifully detailed and three dimensional to immerse guests in wonderland. To the excitement of guests, a new addition was built onto the castle to house a new ending for the attraction. Guests riding down the leaf ramp would assume the ride was ending, but they would enter the new room and a bonus finale of the Unbirthday party. The sixteen original Caterpillar vehicles were refurbished and installed on new chassis. The caterpillar shoes were added to the roof of the old mushroom ticket booth. Several attraction scenes were changed or replaced. The popular upside-down room was replaced with Tweedledee and Tweedledum and the White Rabbit with his cottage. The oversized room was removed to make room for a larger golden afternoon scene filled with singing flowers. Like the other dark rides, the title character would be added to the attraction. Guests could spot Alice across from the Caterpillar, who was sitting on a mushroom. The Alice figure was located in storage at Walt Disney World in Florida. It was a leftover from the 1971 Mickey Mouse Review attraction that had been moved to Tokyo Disneyland. Catherine Beaumont, who was the voice actress for Alice in a 1951 animated Disney film, narrated the original film of the attraction, original version of the attraction in 1958, and returned once again to record the narration for the new attraction. I heard her talk about this at the Walt Disney Family Museum, and of course, by then, she was a grown woman, you know, she was a teacher, and so they they worked with her so that she could approximate the voice and then electronically they sped it up a little and all of that in order to get the voice to sound um as the nineteen fifty one Alice. Um looking back on the Alice in Wonderland project, um Tony Baxter said, I always thought it was a ride that was more popular with young girls while other rides in the area were mostly inside and hidden from view about half of this one was outside where everyone could be seen riding it it was the last thing a teenage boy would want to be seen riding it looked like a passive kitty ride with people riding in a pastel caterpillar we planted trees in front to make it more discreet and added an explosion at the end so a guy who was walking by would get curious and wonder where the explosion was coming from it worked In 1984, a Circle Vision 360 film produced for the China Pavilion at Epcot Center, Wonders of China, premiered at Disneyland on September 8, 1984. This $1 million film transported guests to scenes of China's most Westerners had never visited, including Tibet, the Gobi Desert, the Great Wall, the Forbidden City, and the Yangtze River. Wonders of China would be rotated with American journeys. America the Beautiful was retired. The design of the Disneyland submarine fleet was based on the original nuclear submarines of the United States Navy. However, by 1985, the U.S. Navy had removed these submarines from active service. So in 1985, the Disneyland submarines transitioned from being nuclear naval vessels to undersea research vessels. They were given a bold new color palette and many boats were given new names. The Nautilus, Triton, and Sea Wolf retained their original names. The remaining subs were renamed The Neptune, Sea Star, Explorer, Seeker, and Argonaut. On December 22, 1984, Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln returned to the Opera House on Town Square with a next-generation audio animatronic figure. The Imagineers worked with the Center for Biomedical Research at the University of Utah. Mr. Lincoln showcased the latest technology for maneuvering artificial limbs, called compliance. Never had an audio-animatronic figure displayed such natural human movement. But some of the Imagineers and developers who worked on the original Lincoln figure were not impressed with this latest innovation for Mr. Lincoln, said Blaine Gibson. I feel that the original Lincoln as programmed by Mark Davis and Wadell Rogers was much more tastefully done than the one they have in Disneyland now. The current figure is holding some papers now and he flails around too much. I did think that he was much more dignified when he had his hands behind his back the way they did it originally. You can overanimate things, too. I've always thought that the lack of capabilities back then forced them into devising animation, which was actually more interesting, and it let the audience use their imagination. Wathel Rogers agreed with Blaine Gibson. We made him move slow and dignified because of our limitations. In 1984, Disneyland's attendance hit a record low of 9.5 million guests. The 1984 summer season was the slowest in 20 years. The low attendance was attributed to the 1984 Summer Olympics, hosted by Los Angeles. In an effort to boost attendance, Disneyland held a promotion with Carl's Jr. With the purchase of a $2.49 bacon cheeseburger, you would receive a free child's ticket to Disneyland. Did you watch the opening ceremony for the 1984 Summer Olympics? By any chance?
2: Yeah, I did. I was in mm-hmm. Seville, Spain.
1: Bob Gurr did the um did the effects for the opening Olympics. Disney designed the the opening ceremony.
0: Is that the and, one that oh, wow. isn't that the one? Is it the one that Wayne was in, or was he in the closing
1: ceremonies? Wayne, I know I Wayne participated in, the, in the, yeah, that's, yeah. The ceremonies. Yeah. I
2: think he was in the closing, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah, yeah well, the opening ceremony went,
1: had the flying saucer, and uh, oh, um, Bob Gurr tells wonderful stories about how they got that thing to work. But it's really impressive. Um, I, I'm, I would think it's on YouTube, but you, but you, but, um, you have to, it, I'm going to have to look for it because I remember that. And uh, it was cool. I was teaching summer school, first grade. And so it was fun that summer just tying the Olympics into everything. So, um, cool. to all the lessons. We even had our own Olympics in the, in the schoolyard. So. I digress. <laughs> um, May- it
2: was a good digression, though.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was fun. I Any mean, Main Street USA continued to see tenants come and go in the 1980s? The American Egg House in Town Square closed on September 30th 1983 and it reopened on October 1st as the Town Square cafe uh, For those of you who are wondering where this is, it's next to what is it, it, it's the little uh shop that is next to today's Disney showcase and then the what is now the livery stable next to it that was a restaurant so where they were,
0: where they do the mm-hmm. embroidery
1: yes okay. That was part of it. I don't
2: it. even remember that being a restaurant. It's yeah. Small, though,
1: right? Well, it, it continued on. Okay, um, gotcha. Where the where the like that livery stable meet and greet area is. Yes. Okay. That was all part of it there, and uh, that there was a patio um, there. Walt would like to have breakfast there. Um, in fact, he had a lot of his morning meetings there. in um, In 1985, after 25 years, the Hallmark card shop closed on January 6th. The Disney Clothiers uh, Limited Shop opened on March 23rd, and on June 14th, the Card Corner, sponsored by Gibson Greetings, opened, and the Carefree Corner Registration Desk closed. The Card Corner will remain open until October 1988. On March 30th, 1986, the Disney Anna shop and the jewelry shop switched locations. In 1989, the Sun Kiss Citrus house closed and on January, it closed on January 3rd and the Disneyland Showcase shop opened on October 27th. Through 1983, the Walt Disney Studios' creative and financial resources were focused on the development and construction of Epcot Center. No one was thinking about Disneyland or its future. Finally, in 1984, Disney's corporate director, Ray Watson, began working with CEO Ron Miller on a long-range master plan for Disneyland. One of the ideas was the development of a second theme park on the 40-acre strawberry field across West Street, north of the Disneyland Hotel. Just as the concept of Epcot Center was completely different from the Magic Kingdom at Walt Disney World, Ray Watson and Ron Miller wanted a second park in Anaheim that would be completely different from Disneyland. A concept they considered was a park based on non-Disney characters and properties, such as E.T. the Extraterrestrial or the films of George Lucas. It was ultimately decided that there would be no demand for another theme park in Southern California until 1995, because the market was already saturated. So Disneyland's planning team recommended working to improve food, merchandising, and focus more attention on teenagers and guests over 45 years of age. Visitors to Disneyland are very much aware that Walt Disney used the park to promote his films as a majority of the attractions and shows are drawn directly from animated and live-action Disney films. Imagineers were facing a dilemma in the 1980s. In the 15 years since Walt's passing, the studio had not had a hit film – from which they could develop an attraction. The last popular Disney animated film was 1967's The Jungle Book, which was the last film supervised by Walt Disney. Imagineers developed attraction concepts for The Black Hole, Tron, Robin Hood, and Island at the Top of the World, but none of those films found an audience, which, and that ended any plans for an attraction, no one at the studio wanted an attraction that reminded them of a failure. If Disneyland were to thrive and captivate new generations of children and their parents, um, th- 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 it had to have new attractions. This was made very clear to Tony Baxter when he was visiting Disneyland and during a parade saw a five-year-old girl ask her 25-year-old mother as she pointed to the caterpillar on Alice in Wonderland, Mom, What's that? Her mother replied, Oh, I guess it's a worm or something.
2: Oh my gosh.
1: Tony realized the mother wasn't even born when Alice in Wonderland and the other Disney classics were in theaters and on which the Disneyland attractions were based. The park could not survive on nostalgia. Tony Baxter and the new generation of Imagineers no longer had to guess what would be successful in the park. They had grown up with Disneyland, and they knew what the public wanted. Because of the poor performance of Disney films, the Imagineers believed they had to look outside of the Disney company to find inspiration for attractions. The decision was made to reach out to George Lucas, whose Indiana Jones and Star Wars films had become part of the American culture and changed filmmaking. If an agreement could be reached between Lucasfilms and Disney, the theme park attraction possibilities would be practically endless. A meeting was set up with George Lucas and Disney president and CEO Ron Miller at the Miller's Winery, Silverado Vineyards, in the Napa Valley. Representatives from Imagineering were also invited. Tony Baxter recalled this meeting, and I've heard Marty Sklar speak about it at the Walt Disney Family Museum on a few occasions. The Disney team arrived before George Lucas, so Ron Miller drove the group in his Jeep and gave them a tour of the winery and explained the winemaking process. He also let them sample his first vintages. Then they went to the Millers' home on the property, which is a Victorian-style ranch house, where lunch was waiting in the backyard. A BMW drove up and out stepped George Lucas, who greeted them with a, Hi, guys! At that moment, Tony Baxter thought, Okay— the lady who is serving the potato salad is Diane, Walt's daughter. The guy in the BMW just revolutionized the film industry, and Ron is the president of the Walt Disney Company. It doesn't get any better than this. During the course of the meeting, many ideas were discussed, including the creation of a new land adjacent to Tomorrowland that would include up to seven attractions based on George Lucas's films. Enthusiasm was high, and the future of Disneyland looked bright. This moment would be short-lived. Within six months, Walt Disney Productions would be a very different company. Ronald William Miller, or Ron, met Diane Disney on a blind date when he was a student and football player at USC. After he courted Diane, he sought approval to ask for her hand in marriage from her parents Walt and Lillian Disney. They married on May 9, 1954, and became the parents of seven children. Ron served in the military during their first six years of marriage and played one season of pro football with the Los Angeles Rams. Walt attended Ron's games, and after seeing him receive a serious injury that resulted in Ron being unconscious for two quarters, offered Ron a job with the company because Walt was positive Ron would be crippled or killed if he continued playing pro football. Ron accepted his father-in-law's offer. Looking back, Ron Miller shared the story with entertainment reporter Dale Pollack in 1984. My father-in-law saw me play in two football games when I was with the L.A. Rams. In one of them, I caught a pass, and Dick Night Train Lane let me have it from the rear. His forearm came across my nose and knocked me unconscious. I woke up in about the third quarter. At the end of the season, Walt came up to me and said, You know, I don't want to be the father to your children. You're going to die out there. How about coming to work with me? I did, and it was a wise decision on my part. I'm really very proud of having been a professional athlete. I think it teaches you to be competitive, to accept challenges, and to see things through. I realize the image some people have of jocks, but I think that certainly has changed over the years. Ron started at the bottom as a production assistant. Ron worked his way through the studio ranks and became a director and producer. He continued to rise through the executive ranks to president in 1980 and chief executive officer in 1983. There is a common belief that Ron Miller provided poor leadership and lacked vision. However, during his tenure, the Walt Disney Home Entertainment Division released its first videos in 1980. Also in 1980, Disney had its first co-produced film with Paramount, Popeye, starring, um, oh gosh, name went right out of my head.
0: Robin Williams? Robin, Robin Williams.
1: Williams. <laughs> the Disney Channel was announced in 1981. Rub-
0: Robin Williams liked to forget that movie too, I think.
1: I, I actually, I, I thought it was a good film. <laughs> I was pretty young when I saw it, but I enjoyed it. Um, the, Disney – wasn't Shelley Duvall olive oil? Yes. She was perfect as olive oil. The Disney Channel was announced in 1981. Epcot Center opened in 1982. Tokyo Disneyland in 1983. In 1983, Ron Miller created Silver Screen Partners, which was created to produce financing and ownership for Walt Disney Pictures and Touchstone – and in 1984, Ron Miller launched Touchstone Films, which would allow Disney to create films targeted to a more adult audience. The stage was set to turn around the studio's poor performance. The first two Touchstone films, Splash and Country, were financially successful. Michael Eisner would take full credit for the success of Touchstone. In 1983, Disney produced its first Broadway show, Total Abandon, starring Richard Dreyfuss. Ron also hired Tim Burton and encouraged him to to develop his own style of art and animation. Ron went against the advice of the company executives, including Card Walker, and acquired the rights and put into development the book Who Censored Roger Rabbit? Ron Miller also initiated Disney Animation's first attempts at computer animation. Although it has been widely reported that the company was financially hemorrhaging, that was not true. Three months before Ron Miller's resignation, Disney reported all-time record profits that had doubled over the previous year. Revenues for the quarter ended June 30th, 1984, rose 35% to $483 million from $358 million, whilst profits rose 112% to $45 million from $21 million compared to the same period the previous year year just one month before he left the disney company in 1984 ron miller said i think my greatest responsibility is to challenge the creative people in this organization to come up with new things we've never even considered i hope that in 1990 we'll be doing something that people never thought disney could do this company's going forward and i am very proud and pleased to be a part of it Storm clouds formed over Walt Disney Productions as a hostile takeover attempt led by Saul Steinberg, almost succeeded in gaining control of the company. At first, Disney tried to increase its corporate debt to become a less attractive purchase by buying a Florida real estate firm and the nation's third largest greeting card manufacturer, Gibson, for a total of more than $600 million in Disney stock. Steinberg fought with financial help from MGM-UA's owner, Kirk Kerkorian, who together threatened to carve up the Disney empire into several fiefdoms, consisting of the company's valuable film library of animated and live-action features, the Burbank Film Studio, theme parks, and undeveloped Florida real estate. Disney's management, criticized by rank-and-file stockholders for trying to hold on to their jobs, bought Steinberg off for $300 million, which included a profit of $30 million for the New York multimillionaire. A suit to stop the payoff was filed. Another suit brought by a major stockholder, Irwin Jacobs, to stop the acquisition of Gibson Greetings Incorporated was dropped when Disney agreed to cancel the deal. The chairman of Cincinnati, Cincinnati-based Gibson then threatened to sue Disney. Erwin Jacobs, a Minneapolis investor, in consort with several other financiers, began buying up stock amid rumors that he planned a lucrative greenmail raid similar to Steinberg's. Roy E. Disney, a nephew of Walt Disney, whose father was Roy O. Disney, once worked under Ron Miller in the 1970s as a producer of Nature Films for the Disney commercial television program owned about 4% of the company's share of stocks, resigned from the board of directors in March 1984, and launched his first Save Disney campaign <laughs> with the with the intention to force Ron Miller out and install a new president and CEO. Roy E. Disney joined the board as vice chairman June 22nd and was joined on the board by two allies, Stanley P. Gold and Peter Daly. The three had opposed Disney's bid for Gibson Greetings, as did another new director, Charles E. Cobb, Jr., chairman of the Arvida Corporation and a representative of the Bass family. One of the first items on their agenda was the removal of Ron Miller as president and CEO of Walt Disney Productions. The Bass family, which owned 70% of Arvida, a Florida resort and land development company, acquired 5.5% of Disney's shares when Disney acquired Arvida for $212 million in stock as part of its defense against Saul Steinberg. After a tumultuous six months of fending off the attempted corporate takeover, Ron Miller ended his 18-month tenure as president and chief executive of Walt Disney Productions on September 7, 1984, by offering his resignation under pressure from the company's directors. His resignation was unanimously accepted by the board of directors. Ray Watson's uh, Ray Watson, a longtime Disney director who became chairman in April 1983, was named acting chief executive, but was not a candidate to succeed Mr. Miller. According to Edwin Oaken, a Disney spokesman, Ron has made many fine contributions to the success of the company. Ray Watson said in a prepared statement, We are all grateful for his efforts and we extend to him our best wishes for every success in the future. Ray Watson said through Edwin Oaken that Disney's directors had begun a search for a recognized leader, most likely from within the entertainment industry with a proven corporate background and established name. The company said it had no candidates in mind, but hoped to complete the search by the end of September. During their search, they stated they would seek an executive who agreed with the company's current strategy of investing in real estate, motion pictures, and theme parks, and in particular maintaining the company's wholesome image. With the resignation of Ron Miller, no one from Walt's side of the Disney family had a seat on the board. Ray Watson wanted Stanley Gold to resign from the board in favor of Diane Miller or Sharon Lund to address this imbalance and to promote unity. Sharon Lund would accept a position on the board of directors. She would also serve as an officer of Wetlaw Retlaw Enterprises and as a trustee for Cal Arts. After much political and financial machinations within the company. The Board of Directors and the Investors, Michael Eisner, was named CEO of Walt Disney Productions in September 1984 with Frank Wells as president. In his memoir, Work in Progress, Michael Eisner praised the removal of his predecessor, Ron Miller, by Walt Disney Productions board as an act of independence and even courage when they asked for and received Miller's resignation. Within a few months, Michael Eisner and Frank Wells would transform Walt Disney Productions almost beyond recognition. Within a year, nothing within the company remained untouched by the Eisner-Wells teams, and that included the theme parks. In our next episode of 60 Years of Disneyland, we'll complete our visit to Disneyland of the 1980s and examine all the innovations Michael Eisner and Frank Wells brought to Disneyland. Many books, films, articles, interviews, and lectures were sourced for this episode of 60 Years of Disneyland, including The Disneyland Story, The Unofficial Guide to the Evolution of Walt Disney's Dream by Sam Genoway, Disneyland Inside Story by Randy Bright, Disneyland The Nickel Tour by Bruce Gordon and David Mumford, Wall Street, The Raiders, and the Battle for Disney Storming the Magic Kingdom by John Taylor. Tony Baxter, first of the second generation of Walt Disney Imagineers by Tim O'Brien. In Praise of Ron Miller by Jim Corcus for Mouse Planet, October 14th, 2015. A Profile of Ron Miller for Nostalgia, April 5th, 2011. Disney's Chief is Forced Out, New York Times, September 8th, 1984. What was interesting in every financial article I read? On this, which was a number of them, that was written in 1984, they said if Ron Miller had had been in office another year or two, uh, uh, the total turnaround of Walt Disney Productions would have been seen with everything that he had um, started. Um, wow. Um, of course, uh, Michael Eisner um, took credit for everything that Ron Miller had initiated. So. So and and let let that be Ron Miller's epitaph that he was the one that set uh you know the the Walt Disney company on its on its course um after Walt's death and remember i only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing that it was all started by a man Walt Disney
0: Thank you, Michael. That is going to do it for this segment of the Diz Unplugged. Be sure to catch all of our other Diz Unplugged podcasts this week. And, of course, we will be back again with you next week. Until then, remember, Disneyland is always more magical when it's shared. Thanks for listening.